and welcome back to What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for KFF Health News, and I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping this week on Thursday, October 26th at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. We are joined today by a video conference by Alice Miranda Olstein of Politico. Good morning. And Rachel Kors of Stat News. Hi, everybody. Later in this episode, we'll have my interview with Michael Cannon, noted libertarian health expert, about his new book called Recovery, A Guide to Reforming the U.S. Health Sector. But first, before we get on to this week's news, a small correction from last week's podcast. In talking about just how confusing open enrollment for Medicare is, I misstated the open enrollment dates. It runs this year from October 15th to December 7th, not to December 15th. See, I said it was confusing. All right, now to the news. Um, hey, we got a Speaker of the House again. Mike Johnson is in his fourth term from the 4th District of Louisiana. He's not strictly a backbencher. He was in the lower levels of House leadership. But I think it's fair to say that a lot of people, including me, had no idea who he was until this week, other than that he was involved kind of heavily in trying to overturn the 2020 presidential election. And also, as far as I can tell, he's not been active in health policy in Congress other than opposing abortion. What have you found out about Mike Johnson? Alice, you wrote about him, right? Yeah. So I wrote about his anti-abortion record, and that's just one facet. There has been a lot of you know good pieces this week on his opposition to gay rights and on a lot of levels, trans rights, etc. But I focused on his anti-abortion record because that's my beat. <laughs> and so, yes, I mean, I think it's worth noting that he used to work for the Alliance Defending Freedom, which is the conservative legal powerhouse that was behind the case that overturned Roe versus Wade and is now spearheading heading the case trying to restrict abortion pills nationwide. They're a part of a lot of other anti-abortion legal battles as well. And since coming to Congress, he has co-sponsored a lot of anti-abortion legislation, including bans at 15 weeks and six weeks. And none of those have gone anywhere. But that record has anti-abortion groups stating high hopes for his speakership. But as we know, with such a narrow majority... House Republicans have been hesitant to really take big votes in anti-abortion space this year. And so it will it will be interesting to watch how he navigates that. So, Rachel, we know he's not on any of the, the major health committees. Has he done or said anything about any other parts of health care other than sort of his Christian conservative lane? Well, I think he actually has. And he has a more clear, I think, stance on healthcare reform more generally than a lot of the other candidates we saw because he did lead the Republican Study Committee. I think his term started in 2019. So he actually did sign on to a like healthcare plan. How rare for a Republican. Yeah, really. I mean, we don't see many of those um, that are really spelled out. And um, there's a whole little white paper, like it's still on the internet, but I think it includes some policies that aren't terribly surprising. It includes scaling back subsidies for ACA plans, empowering HSAs, converting Medicaid funding into block grants for states, and also removing some of the ACA's pre-existing condition protections and creating like high-risk pools 
in states. So it is substantive ideas about coverage and costs. It's also Republican healthcare orthodoxy that goes back like 25 years at this point. Exactly. So nothing, you know, crazy, but we do have at least sort of a marker of where he's at a couple years ago. But again, I think there's no reason to believe that he would pursue any of that anytime soon. He has a very full plate with a lot of other things. So um, yeah. That's what I was going to say, which is that Nancy Pelosi came to the speakership, you know, as one of the most liberal members of the House. That is certainly not the way she ran the speakership, because basically her job was to find the votes for things. And she had to please both the left wing of her party and the right wing of her party. And that's hard enough for Democrats. It seems to be even harder these days for Republicans. So sort of no matter what his personal goals are, I mean, this is I guess we're about to find out if he can actually bring together this unbelievably fractious Republican caucus. And I just want to note, too, that, you know, it's not just about the struggle to find the votes, which we saw in the very speakership debacle itself. But also he has spoken about the need to protect their most vulnerable swing district members who are up for reelection next year. These are Republicans who were elected in districts that voted for Biden. And so those people do not want to vote on red meat controversial bills. We're already hearing some issues coming up in appropriations, which is the first major hurdle he has to confront as speaker to avoid a government shutdown in just a few weeks, potentially. And so not only is it about just getting enough votes to get bills through, but not putting these people in a position where Democrats will run a bunch of ads saying, oh, so-and-so voted for this, you know, anti-abortion thing to try to knock them out. Well, while we are on the subject of abortion, um, there's a lot of news there. I want to start with an update to something we talked about last week, the lawsuit in Colorado challenging the state's new law banning medication abortion reversals. I put reversals in quotes over the weekend, a federal district court judge ruled that the law is likely unconstitutional and blocked the state from enforcing it. I imagine this is not the last we will hear about this case, right, Alice? Oh, certainly. So as we discussed before, this is an issue that's in multiple courts, potentially designed to create some sort of split that could go up to the Supreme Court and require them to weigh in. But this, in addition to the current case pending before the Supreme Court about abortion pill access, it really presents new territory in terms of how courts could intervene in the practice of medicine. And we, as we mentioned in California, we have kind of the opposite case going forward with the state suing a string of crisis pregnancy centers for false advertising for suggesting that they could reverse medication abortions, which of course is trying to give large doses of progesterone between the taking of the two medications that create a medication abortion. And it's turned out to be that there is not a lot of scientific evidence suggesting that this is a thing. And when they tried to do a clinical trial, they had to stop it because women were having serious problems. But we also have an update from Ohio, whose November ballot measure we also talked about, and it's right around the corner. It seems that the governor, who who's also a former senator, Mike DeWine, is going around saying that the constitutional amendment protecting abortion would allow for, quote, partial birth abortions, a controversial procedure that Congress actually banned in 2003 and that the Supreme Court upheld in 2007. And it's a law that DeWine worked on when he was in the Senate. Are these scare tactics? Do we think he really believes that this is what this Ohio ballot measure would do? I mean, this is among the sort of greater arguments that are being made in Ohio around this amendment and saying, I mean, it's very similar to 
the arguments that anti-abortion groups and officials made in all of the states that held their own referendums last year. Basically that should this pass, it'll just be a complete abortion palooza, no regulations, no nothing. And that has not panned out in those other states. And it's especially unlikely to pan out in Ohio, given the makeup of the state legislature and Republicans controlling the state Supreme Court, all these levers of power, the governorship, et cetera. And so this is not Michigan, where Democrats won control of the governorship and the state house and are moving, although it remains to be seen how far they move to unwind some abortion restrictions. But that is not likely to happen in Ohio. I think these groups are parsing language in the amendment itself and sort of extrapolating from that and and sort of saying, oh, this is a code word for this and this is a code word for that. But it's not in the text of the amendment. And because of the balance of powers in the state, it's not likely to pan out that way. Although they do seem worried, Alice and I, we were uh, we were both on this call the other night of, about sort of all of the anti-abortion groups together trying to, to light a fire under their forces over this Ohio ballot measure. I mean, noting, of course, that there have been six votes since Roe was overturned in various states and that they have lost all of them. So Ohio will be a big deal, right, in how this how this goes into next year? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it'll be a big deal for Ohio. Of course, we have a six week ban in that state that has been on hold. It has been blocked in court, but it very well could be unblocked and put back into effect if this amendment doesn't pass. That's sort of the most immediate thing. So it's a big deal for Ohio. But both sides have also made the case that it's a big deal beyond Ohio. It really shows what kind of strategies and messaging are effective in these red or purple states if we can even call ohio purple at this point it's quite red <laughs> it, it's very red with one democratic senator basically. exactly who is up for re-election next year so that is going to be interesting as well you know he and other of the you know remaining endangered democrats in the state are you know vocally supporting this and so that sh- should have an influence as well on on their races So we got an interesting study this week that found that abortions have actually increased in the year since Roe was overturned, although not surprisingly in the states where abortion was banned, where they dropped dramatically. Do we know? I mean, obviously, women are going to other states, but one would not have assumed that it would have gone up because we've talked about all the places where, you know, there were not enough uh, slots basically for women wanting to terminate pregnancies and for women who were not able to travel. I was a little bit surprised by this. What did you make of it? So first, I want to give some big caveats. I mean, a lot of this data is guesswork. They acknowledge that a lot of the providers they reached out to for data just refused to respond. So they had to sort of model it out based on what they were able to get. Also, this does not count any abortions that are happening outside the formal medical system. So people ordering pills from groups like aid access or whatnot delivered to their home. We know that's happening. We know that's a very common thing. And so this doesn't count any of that. But I think, you know, even given all these caveats, there's some interesting things in there. I think that what really caught my attention is not just that states like California that really moved to expand access massively, the people taking advantage of that are not just people traveling from red states. It is also reaching people who were in those blue states 
who struggled to access abortion even in those blue states before. And so they mentioned parts of rural California on the call announcing the data specifically. So I found that interesting, too. So, well, acknowledging, obviously, that more women are traveling to get abortions, abortion opponents are stepping up their efforts to make that illegal, too. This week, Lubbock County in Texas became the fourth Texas county to make it illegal to use its local highways to assist someone in traveling out of state for an abortion. On the one hand, even some anti-abortion lawyers doubt that this is constitutional. But on the other hand, a lot of these laws are more intended to chill behavior than to punish it, right? Particularly in Texas. Yes. Like a lot of state laws and now municipal laws that are being passed in the post-Roe era, enforcement and the practicality of enforcement is not necessarily something that folks are very focused on because the chilling effect is sort of the main goal. And I think this is true for bans on receiving abortion pills by mail. Unless you're going through everyone's mail, you wouldn't really know. And so these travel bans, travel restrictions as well, you know, there there has been a lot of heated rhetoric about, oh, are they going to set up checkpoints and give pregnancy tests to people? No, they're not. I mean, if they were please message us and tell us so we can report on it. But we haven't seen that. And I think the idea is that people are already scared. People are already confused about what's legal and what's not. We know that from polling. And so this just adds to that confusion. And if somebody is already unsure of what they're allowed to do, this could be a further deterrent from them even pursuing the possibility of an abortion. Well, this will obviously continue. Um, Let's move on to Medicaid for a minute. Six months into the, quote, unwinding, unquote, an estimated 9 million Medicaid recipients have been removed from the rolls, some of whom are no longer eligible, but most of whom might still qualify, but either fell through the cracks or states were unable to locate them. Meanwhile, a new report from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation finds that if the 10 states that are still holding out from expanding Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act were to go ahead and expand, nearly 2.5 million more low-income adults would be added to the rolls, and the uninsurance rate would drop by 25%. One of those holdout states, Georgia, is trying to expand using a pilot program with work requirements for those who want to enroll. But so far, three months in, only about 1,300 people have enrolled out of an estimated 100,000 that are potentially eligible. Why is this off to such a slow start? I think the story that you highlighted from the AP gave some reasons about just the paperwork having to be filed. And honestly, having looked at some safety net programs, it is a lot to pull together, you know, if you're pulling financial records and all of that. So I think there's also just the bureaucratic issues that we see with these kind of programs that are kind of designed to keep people out almost. And I think it'll be an interesting test case, you know, as it continues to move forward, whether uptick increases, you know, whether outreach catches up and whether kind of nonprofit groups, grassroots organizations in the state can kind of help people navigate the process. But certainly the paperwork burden isn't to be underestimated here. Alice, you covered the when Arkansas tried to implement this for everybody and it did not go well because even the people who were working, the people who were able to, who were technically able to fulfill the work requirements had trouble reporting the fact that they were fulfilling the requirements. Do you think that's sort of going on at the beginning of the process here in Georgia, whereas in in Arkansas, everybody was suddenly required to do it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely something to watch because, well, first of all, we know from years of data that the people within Medicaid who can work are already working. (laughs) The breakdown of those who are not employed, you know, it's, it's children, it's the elderly, it's people 
people with disabilities, it's people caring for people with disabilities or an elderly relative. And so this is a massive effort that could maybe increase the workforce by a very small number of people. And so some of this is ideological, you know, about these kinds of benefits and who is deserving and undeserving and different opinions about that. But in terms of economics and cost saving, we do not expect this to have a big benefit. And so it's definitely worth watching if people are falling through the cracks because in Arkansas, people didn't even know about the requirement or they didn't have the internet access to be able to report their hours, lots of different ways. Yeah. And of course, in Arkansas, people lost their coverage here in Georgia. It's a matter of people not getting the coverage who are potentially eligible. Um, so yeah, I think we will we will watch to see how this goes. Well, back here in Washington, the National Institutes of Health appears on the road to having a Senate-confirmed director for the first time in a year and a half, uh, as the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee voted 15 to 6 on Wednesday to elevate National Cancer Institute Chief Monica Bertinoli to the top spot. Interestingly, one of those no votes came from Committee Chairman Bernie Sanders, which is pretty much unheard of for a committee chair of the same party as the nominating president. Rachel, what is he trying to prove here? And might it threaten her nomination on the Senate floor? Or do we think this is a relatively done deal? With your first question, I think he for months delayed even having this hearing, having this confirmation vote, because he wanted to use the only lever he has, which is holding up nominations to pressure the Biden administration to take a more hardline stance at the NIH and include language in contracts with drug makers to require some sort of fair pricing or ensuring the U.S. gets the best price when the NIH is investing money in various stages of drug development. So I think that has been his goal. And I think the Biden administration, uh, specifically HHS, threw him a bone with a COVID therapeutic that's in the works from Regeneron, but it's not what he was hoping for. And I think he put out a letter criticizing the NIH granting an exclusive license to a company where a former employee of the NIH works who worked on the medication. And so I think he is just trying to continue to use what leverage he has. But I think the vote that this week was a very good vote for her because we saw several Republicans join Democrats in passing her through. Again, nominations only have a 50 vote threshold in the Senate, so they don't need a whole lot of Republicans. And Sanders, I think, was the only Democrat to oppose her in committee. So it looks like smooth sailing for her whenever they can find floor time for her. Yeah. And I should point out that, you know, it is a time honored tradition in the Senate to hold up a nomination for something that's unrelated to the person who's being nominated for a senator to try and get something out of the administration. What's odd is when it's a senator of the same party. Usually it's a it's somebody from the opposite party of the president trying to to stall a nomination in order to get something else that they want. So this was this was very unusual. It was. And I will say, too, that Given how politicized the NIH has become with function research or there's a million things that Republicans could have chosen to take an ideological stance on. I mean, we saw this with uh, FDA Commissioner Robert Califf's confirmation with CMS Chief Chiquita Brooks-Lasher. I mean, John Cornyn came out of nowhere and you know was trying to make demands of her. So we just haven't seen the full extent that we could have seen from the GOP and trying to hold up her nomination or extract something from the Biden administration. Well, it does still have to get through the 
through the floor. So <laughs> there is time yet. Although I, I, I agree with you, it doesn't it doesn't look like it's going to be a huge problem. Well, finally this week we are launching a new segment that I'm calling "This Week in Health Misinformation." Our first featured story is from my KFF Health News colleague Liz Zabo, and it's called "Suzanne Summers' Legacy Tainted by Celebrity Medical Misinformation." It turns out that Summers, who died earlier this month, spun her sitcom fame into an entire career pushing questionable medical treatments and foregoing chemotherapy when she was diagnosed with breast cancer. Basically, in the words of one doctor quoted in this story, she became an influencer on menopause before being an influencer was even a thing. And lots of people who believed her were probably worse off because of it. This is obviously something that continues to this day, right? We see lots of celebrities pushing dubious things. It used to just be those who were rich enough to, or who worked for company that was wealthy enough to advertise on TV, even if it was in the middle of the night. But now we have social media. And I mean, this kind of misinformation is pretty rampant, right? It is. Yeah. I thought Axios actually had an interesting piece this week as well about anecdotal reports of doctors where patients are interested in getting off of birth control pills, even with everything that we're seeing with, you know, the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And I think, again, they that story mentioned kind of the influencer space where people are trying to sell apps, trying to sell alternatives, spreading information about affecting how it affects your hormone levels. And I think patients don't have a primary care doctor where they can ask some of these questions in an evidence-based place. I think certainly people of all ages are getting information from these influencers on social media. And I think that it is a very interesting trend to see kind of like how that's going to play out from doctor's side. I mean, like you said, we've seen drug companies advertise on TV for a long time trying to influence the care that patients are getting in the office. But I think we're seeing these other sources start to influence the choices that patients are making. It's a really interesting trend. And I think these influencers and purveyors of misinformation, you know, they're really taking advantage of real frustrations with the formal medical system and how it has cared for women and our needs over time and ignored people's complaints and dismiss them and the fact that technology has not advanced on a lot of these fronts for a long time. So I think that leaves an opening for folks to come in and take advantage of that frustration and confusion and, and offer a solution that may possibly be even worse. All right. Well, that is this week's news. Now we will play my interview with my favorite libertarian health policy expert, Michael Cannon, and then we will come back with our extra credits. I am thrilled to welcome to the podcast Michael Cannon, who's Director of Health Policy Studies at the Cato Institute, the libertarian think tank here in Washington. He's the author of a new book about how to fix our broken health care system and one of my favorite people to argue with about health policy. Michael, welcome to What the Health. It's great to have you here. Great to be here. So we'll get to the book in a minute. But first, tell us the difference between the libertarian view of health care and the traditional Democratic or Republican view. I think a lot of people don't understand that. Well, that actually is a good intro to the book because the book provides a broad overview of healthcare, but it starts from the very simple principle that you have rights when it comes to your healthcare. And the most important right you have is the right to make your own health decisions. That's where libertarians start. And that means that libertarians end up agree with Republicans on some things and Democrats on other things because neither party really takes that principle and carries it throughout all aspects of the healthcare debate. 
So we might end up agreeing with Republicans that states should not expand the Medicaid program, but we end up agreeing with Democrats, or I would say that people end up agreeing with us, uh, that women should get to make their own decisions when it comes to contraceptives. And the government should not be requiring women. If you've got a willing seller of oral contraceptives and a willing buyer, the government has no business stepping in between them and requiring women to get a permission slip from a government-appointed gatekeeper, what we call a prescription from a doctor, in order to buy uh, oral contraceptives. In a hundred other countries around the world, women can purchase oral contraceptives without a permission slip from a government-appointed gatekeeper, without a prescription. But in the United States, the government takes away women's right to do that. And so Democrats uphold that principle that people should get to make their own health decisions in that realm, but not in others. And should there be an FDA? Should there be a government referee to decide what's safe? So there should be referees and there should be better referees than the one we have. And that's actually something that I cover in the book. When you give the government the power to decide whether drugs can come onto the market or not and use the criteria of whether they are safe and effective before they can come onto the market, what ends up happening is the government imposes its values on people, its values about what is safe enough and what is effective enough. And while it does keep some unsafe drugs off the market, and that's good, it saves lives that way. It also keeps a lot of safe and beneficial drugs off of the market in ways that harm people. Another example of this is, again, contraceptives, not just how the government is requiring women to get prescription in order to buy oral contraceptives, but for a long time, the government was prohibiting emergency contraception, then prohibiting it without a prescription, and then prohibiting it unless you were of a certain age and there was a huge fight. You covered this story. For many years. <laughs> to get the government out of the way here. But it's even worse than that. If you look at the original introduction of, of the oral contraceptive pill in 1960, there were other countries that had approved the pill earlier. And so when the FDA delayed the introduction of that product onto the market, that had a huge impact. Not only did it violate people's rights, which is really important. I mean, it violates the principle of equality when the government does that. But keeping that beneficial product off the market had tremendous costs. Most recent winner of the Nobel Prize in Economics, Claudia Golden, did a lot of research showing that when the pill finally came onto the market, women were able to delay marriage. They were, well, they were able to delay conception and marriage and invest in education. And we saw huge gains in women's equality as a result of that. But when the FDA kept that drug off the market, it delayed the cause of women's equality. So do we want someone to provide safety and efficacy assurance? Absolutely. And if we left this to people outside of the government, not only would that system be consistent with your right to make your own health decisions, but we would get better safety and efficacy certification. And I talk about one of the ways that would happen in the book uh, using the example of Vioxx. This is a non-sororial anti-inflammatory drug that the FDA pulled off the market years ago. Most people, when I ask this question, don't know the answer, but I bet you do, Julie. Do you remember where they got the evidence showing that Vioxx led to adverse cardiac events and was killing people? I do not people? remember. <laughs> it was Kaiser Permanente. Kaiser Permanente, which has been investing in electronic health records since the 1960s, once there were questions about whether Vioxx was causing heart attacks, they said, well, you know what? We've got all these records. We've got lots of people who've been taking Vioxx. Let's do a retrospective observational study trying to control for everything that we can, and we'll see if there's an impact. And they found there was one. And that convinced the FDA that this drug that the FDA had let on the market was, in fact, killing people. And so here you have a market-generated way of, of, of testing drugs and certifying safety and efficacy 
that beat the FDA, that did a better job than the FDA and did at keeping unsafe drugs off of the market. The FDA will argue that there are that the whole point of the way they approve drugs is that you're supposed to test them after they get on the market when they're in a bigger population in case there were things that were not seen in the original studies. But it's definitely a flaw in the FDA's model is they do randomized controlled trials or they require randomized controlled trials that have a few thousand patients in them that will not, cannot detect effects like those of Vioxx because the effects are so small and you will not be able to detect them until hundreds of thousands or millions of people are taking that drug. And so that is a flaw in the FDA's model. It's a flaw in the whole idea of giving government the power to make these decisions and relying on government for safety and efficacy certification. Because if the government had never gotten involved, if we had left this completely to market forces, then I argue in the book that institutions like Kaiser Permanente that have the motive and the means and the opportunity to test drugs at all along the way, they would not stop like the FDA does at testing it a few thousand people. They would keep monitoring drugs throughout as the population taking those drugs increases, and they would catch the harmful side effects of drugs a lot faster than the FDA did. But we only have one Kaiser Permanente right now. And the reason we do is because a raft of things that the government has done to violate people's rights to choose that sort of health plan. And also, we have a, a vast market in electronic medical records. They're all supposed to be able to talk to each other, and they can't. But let's not go there. I don't want to get too far off track. But the electronic records we have right now are, are there because government spent so many years suppressing them by suppressing plans like Kaiser that naturally invested them. And then woke up one morning and said, well, gosh, we spent decades suppressing electronic health records. And I do talk about this in the book. Why don't we subsidize them now? And so now Medicare is subsidizing meaningful use of electronic medical records. And they're still not doing what the Kaiser records do because they're not interoperable and they don't focus on a defined patient population so that you can monitor them over time and detect these sorts of effects. That's another wonderful illustration, electronic health records are, of the things that go wrong when you let government make these decisions for people. So, and I think you've already sort of gotten to this. One of the biggest complaints about our healthcare system now is how ridiculously complicated it is for the average patient to navigate. How would, would what you're supporting make that easier? So every economic system, whether we're talking about socialism, communism on one end and totally free markets on the other end and things like mixed welfare states or crony capital, it doesn't matter what economic system you're talking about. It's going to serve whoever controls the money. And so if you want a system that is simpler for consumers to understand, then you have to set up a system where nobody gets any money unless consumers understand, unless they're providing consumers what the consumer wants. The U.S. health sector consumes about $4.6 trillion at this point. It's about one-sixth of GDP on its way to six-sixths of GDP. And most of that money, the consumers don't control it. One of the things that I write about in the book is I include some OECD data that shows that in the United States, government controls uh, directly or indirectly about 85% of health spending. That's the eighth highest of all OECD countries. It's just two or three percentage points behind the number one country, uh, which I think is Norway or Germany. It keeps changing from year to year. But that's a larger share than in countries like the UK and Canada that have explicitly socialized systems. So here we have the government compelling people to spend 85% of what we spend on healthcare the way the government wants or the way that employers want. And then the industry ends up capturing those decisions about how people have to spend those resources. And we wonder why the system isn't serving consumers very well. 
So what I propose in the book is a number of things, a number of changes that would return that $4.6 trillion that we spend every year on healthcare to the consumers so that the system would serve them. You have to change the tax code to do that. You have to change the Medicare program and other things to do that. But I think that's the only way to make things simpler for consumers. And there's evidence in the book that when consumers are in control of the money, the system does become simpler for them. It provides them the price information they want and becomes easier for them to navigate. So transparency, which I know is kind of a linchpin to to a lot of this and that you've been talking about for many more years than I think before it even got trendy. Um, It's one of the few things that Republicans and Democrats have agreed on for years, but it's been much harder to make happen than I think anybody expected, even with the power of government. We're seeing, for example, hospitals pretty flagrantly ignoring the rule that they're supposed to post prices in a consumer accessible way. If the government can't make it happen, how can consumers make it happen? I'm so glad you asked, Julie, because there's evidence in the book on that. There's this, what I call the most important chart you've never seen in health policy. It collects the results from a series of studies that employers like Safeway and the CalPERS system for health benefits for California state employees, they did a series of experiments that put the patient in control of the money that they were going to be spending on things like lab tests and colonoscopies and knee and shoulder or arthroscopy, MRIs, CT scans, hip and knee replacements. Shoppable services. Yeah, right? what we call things shoppable. Things are not emergencies. Right? What we call shoppable services because the insurance companies and these employers could not get the prices down for these services. Try as they might. They had hospitals charging them $60,000 for a hip and knee replacement when others were charging twelve, and there was no difference in quality. The hospitals were just exploiting their market or monopoly power. So what CalPERS did in the case of hip and knee replacements was they said, look, the hip and knee replacement candidates can go to any hospital they want, but we're going to pay $30,000 no matter where they go. And if they go to a hospital that charges more than that, then they have to pay the balance. As soon as the consumer had an incentive to care about price, an amazing thing happened, not just with hip and knee replacements, but with everything else. They started demanding price information from hospitals. The hospitals began giving them the price information, making prices transparent. And then the consumers started changing their behavior by switching from the high-priced hospitals to the low-priced hospitals. And then the most amazing and glorious thing, and it's why this is the, that chart is the most important chart in healthcare, hospitals began dropping their prices. The high-priced hospitals dropped the price for hip and knee replacements by $16,000 per procedure on average. That was a 37% reduction. In just two years, when do you ever see prices falling like that in healthcare? And if you care about universal healthcare, then that chart is the most important chart you have ever seen because if you care about universal healthcare, nothing is more important than falling prices. But that series of experiments also illustrates that if you care about price transparency, then you want to change who controls the money so that it's the consumer so that healthcare providers have to provide transparent prices and other information that consumers want, or else they're not going to make any money. So we've both been around Washington for a very long time, and we know that with very few exceptions, things only happen extremely incrementally. That's the only way anything gets through either the Congress or the administration or God forbid both. So what would be one thing that you think we could do to put the system on a path to where you think it would work better? So in the book, you will not find Michael's perfectly ideal conception of what a healthcare sector would look like. I do try to, and I should mention, the book takes that principle that you should be able to make your health decisions, and it applies them throughout the health sector. It looks at clinician licensing at the state level, state health insurance licensing and regulation laws, 
health facilities regulation, medical malpractice, the tax code, Medicare, Medicaid, veterans benefits. And I would love to have a conversation about that sometime because that's particularly topical nowadays. But in each case, you know, I don't try to present what is the perfect libertarian idea. I try to put out there what I think is the biggest step that people would be willing to talk about and then some incremental steps that we could take along the way. And in some cases, those incremental steps there are actually pretty small. And even, but in other cases, the incremental steps are a little bigger <laughs> because it wouldn't make sense to make them any smaller. And uh, well, let me give you an example. The tax code imposes a payroll tax and an income tax on every dollar of cash that you earn from your employer uh, up to a point. I, to be technically accurate, Social Security tax uh, ends at a point, but it does not tax that dollar if your employer provides it to you in the form of health insurance. And what this arguably does is, is it creates what is functionally a mandate. Either you take some portion of your money, of your compensation as health insurance, or if you want to take that money as cash and buy your own health insurance, you have to pay higher taxes. And that's effectively a penalty if you don't enroll in the kind of health plan the government wants you to enroll in. And I call this the original sin of U.S. health policy because that one mistake, which is sort of an accident that, that Congress and the Treasury Department stumbled into, has caused just about every form of dysfunction that you will find in the U.S. health sector. And what it doesn't cause, it made worse. And so the worst part might be that it separates workers from a trillion dollars of their earnings and lets employers control that trillion dollars year after year. So what I propose is to change the tax code in a way that lets workers control that trillion dollars, lets them choose their health plan, and that levels the playing field between employer-sponsored insurance and, and other forms of insurance so that they're able to purchase health insurance that doesn't disappear when their job does. And that might sound like a, a pretty big step. And I think that, you know, kind of it is, but it's not as big as most people would think, I imagine, because the way I propose doing this would, I think, cap the exclusion for the first time, which is something that appeals to Democrats. They tried to do that in the, the Affordable Care Act. It didn't work because it was just pure austerity if all you do is tax health benefits. But what this proposal would do is return that trillion dollars to workers, which is in effect a tax cut and a progressive tax cut because it would mean more to low-income workers than high-income workers. The average amount that employers spend on family coverage for their workers is $17,000 per year. The most recent Kaiser report just came out, said it's now up to $17,000 per year. And that's $17,000 of the workers' earnings. So returning that money to the workers so they can control it, that'll mean a lot to me, to someone making six figures, but it's going to mean a hell of a lot more to someone making $50,000 a year. They get to control a much larger share of their income. So it's a progressive tax cut, but it also benefits people with expensive medical conditions more because they would get a bigger cash out than the average. Women, people with obesity and so forth, that the economic research shows us they are actually losing control over a larger share of their earnings. So the approach that I propose to reform the tax code might seem like a big step. I don't think it's going to happen in this Congress, but I think once people get their heads around how this it actually serves both Democratic priorities and Republican priorities, it maybe not only happened, but happened on a bipartisan basis. I can't resist asking this question because economists love the idea of doing something about the employer tax exclusion for, you know, I think it's the largest single tax expenditure in the federal budget. But 
in the past, they'd always said, but what will consumers do if you give them back this money? There's no market for them. Well, thanks to the Affordable Care Act, now there is a market for them. But you hated the Affordable Care Act. Would you not acknowledge at some point that now at least it's more doable because if you give them back that money, there's some place for them to go and spend it on? So if people know me for anything, the role I played in trying to roll back uh, or eliminate the Affordable Care Act. And so if folks who love Obamacare want some reason to dismiss what I have to say, there's that. That's there. I still think there's a lot in the book for fans of Obamacare, but I gladly concede your point, Julie. One of the hardest parts about reforming the tax exclusion for employer-sponsored insurance is that If you do that, if you level the playing field between the employer market and the individual market for health insurance, there is a risk that some employers might drop their health plans and leave people with expensive medical conditions high and dry. That was the fear that Barack Obama exploited to great effect against John McCain uh, in the 2008 presidential campaign when John McCain proposed a universal tax credit. I think that was a bad proposal, and I'm not sorry that it failed. But listeners who don't recall should look up a Barack Obama yarn commercial and they'll be able to see that 30-second television spot. But as much as I do not like the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare, as much as I think it has increased the cost and reduced the quality of health insurance for everybody, I must concede that now that it exists, it makes reforming the tax exclusion for employer-sponsored health insurance a lot easier. Because if someone says to me, Canon, why should we go along with this plan of yours? What if employers drop coverage? I would say, well, first of all, employers are not likely to drop coverage. The Affordable Care Act has taught us that. Everyone thought that after Obamacare passed, employers would drop coverage. They really haven't in the sort of numbers we expected. But even if they do, there is that heavily regulated, heavily subsidized market that we call the exchanges that will be there for people whose employers do drop their coverage. So that becomes one less reason not to reform the tax exclusion. Such a good example of how it's going to take everybody's ideas to actually make all of this work. Michael Cannon, thank you so much. This has been fun. I could go on. I know you could go on, but we should stop now. (laughs) We'll have you back soon. That'd be great. Thank you so much, Julie. Okay, we are back. It's time for our extra credit segment. That's when we each recommend a story we read this week we think you should read too. As always, don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links on the podcast page at kffhealthnews.org and in our show notes on your phone or other mobile device. Alice, why don't you go first this week? Sure. So I chose a piece by my colleagues on our technology team about a massive set of lawsuits filed against Meta, which owns Facebook and Instagram. So this is challenging them for lying about their practices regarding children on their platforms and not doing enough to prevent mental health problems for those children. And the massive array of lawsuits here from state attorneys general is being compared to the tobacco lawsuits that resulted in massive settlements and policy changes. And so it it remains to be seen if this will result in the same, but I think there's just been a lot of focus, especially recently, on how these platforms, you know, are designed to be addictive, are designed to push content that is outrageous, upsetting, et cetera, just to keep people scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. And, you know, especially how that's impacting children. We've had a lot of concerns about uh, mental health, you know, during the pandemic where kids were (laughs) out of school and thus, you know, getting sucked into these sort of apps even more. Um, So um, definitely something to follow. It is. Rachel. Um, So my story this week, the headline is Ozempic and Wagovi don't cost what you think they do from the New York Times and Gina Colada. 
I thought this story was interesting. It essentially is kind of a write-up of a study by the American Enterprise Institute just pointing out that net prices for these popular weight loss drugs are lower than their list prices, which may be true. And I think that she points out this interesting kind of historical precedent with hepatitis C medications where they like were really transformative um, and initially and crazy expensive. Yes, yeah. very expensive. Uh, also curative, which these drugs are not. But once more competition came on the market, prices did eventually go down. It was kind of the example of competition working how, in theory, it should in this space. And certainly we could see a similar dynamic play out with these medications. But one thing I think that just personally frustrates me as a reporter is, you know, the pharmaceutical industry likes to talk about how net prices are so much lower than list prices and they're so frustrated with the focus on list prices, but they never want to tell us what the net prices are. And I think that just puts reporters in a really difficult position where we don't really know what truth is. And obviously insurance companies are trying to spin things their own way and pharma companies are trying to spin stuff their own way and nobody wants to show us the numbers. So I think that puts us in a difficult position also just would like to point out that a lot of employers insurance plans don't necessarily cover these medications. It has been an uphill battle. Certainly there's been progress, um, some state benefits plans, but I mean, there are cost concerns with these medications. And I think there's just some counter-programming here uh, with a new argument about the cost effectiveness long-term. You know, I thought it was an interesting point, not one that necessarily is new. And if insurance companies are covering these drugs, then patients are still stuck paying the out-of-pocket price. So interesting thought and would be good to include in kind of cost-benefit analyses going forward. But again, if insurance companies, if pharmaceutical companies aren't going to give us the numbers, then it just makes it really difficult to, to crunch this. I would. I was actually interested in this story because one of the big things that I feel like people keep missing with these drugs is that they're making these long-term assumptions that these drugs are always going to cost what they cost now. And there's no, which is a lot of money and would be prohibitively expensive if, if everybody who's eligible for them were to take them. Obviously, we can't afford that. But, you know, at some point, there is some competition. And if, you know, they keep developing drugs, the costs will come down. And then it will be a whole lot easier for people to afford things. And then the cost-benefit analysis changes. So Am I? I'm just, I, yeah, uh, yeah. But, but I, really I'm just, I get frustrated at people who assume that the price is, you know, the price is what it is and that's what it's going to be going forward because I suspect that is not the case. But I think you're right. It will be high as long as they can keep it a secret. <laughs> All right. My extra credit story is from the Washington Post this week by Greg Jaffe and Patrick Marley, and it's called The Pandemic Has Faded in This Michigan County. The Mistrust Never Ended. It's a long and beautifully written chronicle of just how enough people in Ottawa County in Michigan were convinced that public health is the enemy to result in basically a taking apart of the county's health department. It is well worth reading the whole thing. It's really kind of heartbreaking. All right, before we go this week, I have a sneak peek at some of the finalists for our KFF Health News Halloween Haiku Contest. The winners will be unveiled on Halloween, October 31st. Um, but here's one finalist from Michael Lasowski. A trick or treatment, prior authorization, a fright to patients. And here's another from Meg Murray. Open enrollment, watch out for ghosts, goblins, and junk insurance too. 
Okay, that is our show. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Special thanks, as always, to our tireless engineer, Francis Ying. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at what the health, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can still find me at x at jrovner or at Julie Rovner at Blue Scry and Threads. Alice, where are you these days? I am at Alice Olstein on X and Alice Miranda on Blue Sky. Rachel. I'm at Rachel Coors on X. We will be back in your feed next week. Until then, be healthy.